0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another uh, edition of our Monday morning Facebook Live devotional. You could also catch this on Facebook later in the day. If you miss this, um, it'll be stored on the Facebook page. It'll also be posted to our website, SovereignHope.Church, and our podcast on iTunes or uh, the Google podcast or wherever you find your podcasts these days. Um, Hopefully this is a blessing to you guys we're glad to provide this in a time where um, we're still in a unique season of being able to gather and uh, this is one of the ways where we can take advantage of the technology that god has given to us so we are continuing in the f260 bible reading plan um, again if you are just stopping by we're so glad you're here we are progressing through a specific bible reading plan you could find that online um, even on our website I've loved this plan because I can tell you, uh, I have not fallen more than two days behind so far this whole year, and that's not me bragging because generally I'm terrible at it, but because this plan has uh, two days off a week, it gives me time to catch up, and so um, I've never felt the crushing weight of Bible reading amounting behind me, so I'm glad for that. And we uh, spent most of the last week in Proverbs looking at the reign of King Solomon, and now we are continuing on, in the history of Israel, kind of God's people, and what we are beginning to see today is that the glory days of Israel, the glory days typified by King David and King Solomon, are long gone. Things are not going well for God's people, for God's physical ethnic people, and what we're beginning to see is uh, since Friday when we read, and I believe we were in First uh, Kings 11 and 12, uh, what we've seen where we pick up today, today we're looking at 1 Kings 16 and 17, is there's a string of kings, um, and the kings are from now two kingdoms, and this is because there's a civil war going on in Israel, and so this gets kind of confusing to follow because Israel is, in one sense, all of God's corporate people, the 12 tribes of Israel, and yet during the civil war, what has happened is Israel has split into two um, kind of uh, broader tribes, and that is the tribes of Israel, And so those are going to be 10 tribes that are going to be up in the north. And so generally when you see Israel spoken of in the rest of the history here in 1st and 2nd Kings, it's speaking of these 10 tribes who are up in the north. And then there's Judah, and these are the other two tribes that are going to be in the south. And so Israel is in the north, um, Judah is in the south, and you're kind of following these kings. And so we've seen some kings in Judah, we've seen some kings in Israel, and there's war going on all around this. And one thing I really want you to listen for in this is uh, the corporate nature of Israel's king and the effect it has on, on the people. And you're going to start seeing things where the goodness of a king leads to the good of the people and the sinfulness of a king leads to the 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 sorrow of the people. In fact, you'll begin to see phrases that so-and-so as king led his people to sin. And this reminds us all the more um, of how good Jesus is. He is the good king who doesn't lead us into sin, but actually died for our sin. He was a good king over a poor people, and yet he sacrificed himself for them. And so as we read through this, be really mindful of that corporate nature of Israel's king. Uh, We want to see that for God's people, their good is always tied up in their king. And that's true um, all the more clearly when we look in the New Testament and see Christ as the king over the church. So we were in kind of the last part of 1 Kings 16 today, I think beginning in verse 29, if that's correct. Yep, 29 through 1 Kings 17. And so I'm going to give just a summary here. Of what's going on because we're beginning to to meet some new characters who are gonna be pretty influential uh, over the remainder of first and second Kings and so the first character we meet is Ahab. Ahab is a king in Israel and he is not a good king um, and it says in verse 31 as if it had, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam and we'll come back to that in a little bit he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. He, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Uh, and so here we, we see Ahab not a good guy. Um, not only was he uh, not a good king like Jeroboam, But we see that he intermarried with uh, uh, someone who is not going to help him follow Jesus or follow Yahweh. And he also began to build these pagan temples. He didn't just build the idols. He built temples for these idols. And so this is not trending well for God's people. It's not trending well for the kingdom of Israel. And then right after that, something that's important that we'll circle back to as we see this little aside that might not make any sense to us right now, but in verse 34, it says, In his days, that's in Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun so if you remember way back to Jericho, after Jericho was destroyed, Jericho as the city, which it was, the walled city, was kind of cursed by God. And God said, cursed be the one who rebuilds Jericho. Um, And and alluded to this fact that it was going to to cost the life of his children. And so we see that little aside here. And now we're introduced to um, kind of the yin to Ahab's yang. And that is uh, Elijah. Elijah, we don't know much of at this point. He's just introduced as the Tishbite, and he is a prophet who hears the word of the Lord. And so uh, we see Ahab, or we see Elijah going to Ahab and he predicts a famine. He says, uh, "There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word." And so Elijah says this to Ahab, and then God carries him away and he leads him to a brook, and that brook is going to provide him water, and then God says that these ravens are going to bring him food, and so he lives for a little season at this brook where the, the, the nature itself yields its bounty to Elijah. He is cared for by the brook, and he's cared for by the ravens, but then the famine affects Elijah too, and so the brook dries up, and God says, arise. This is in verse 9 of chapter 17. Go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to feed you. So he arose and and went there and he meets a widow and he asks the widow for a drink. And the widow goes to get him a drink. But as she's leaving, he says, and also bring me back some bread. And the widow says, I don't have any bread made. I have a little oil and I have a little flour. And I was just gathering these sticks to go. This is how bad the famine has gotten in the land. She's like, I was gathering these sticks to go, Mix together the last of my oil, the last of my flour, and make the last bread for my son and I before we die. And so we see this as a dire situation that this widow's in. We see her generosity to go get Elijah water before she goes and has what she expects to be her last meal. But Elijah says to her, he says, the Lord has said that the the oil will not run dry, nor will your flour run dry. So go and make me some bread and God will provide for you. Uh, I always laughed when I was in uh, seminary on the West Coast, there's a, uh, it's, it looks like a gas station, but it's not a gas station. It's just a, a straight up convenience store. Um, and it's called loaf and jug. And I always thought of the story of Elijah when I saw it, because you've got the flour and the oil jug and, and here's this loaf and jug where you can get everything you need in Portland. So that's a free aside that has nothing actually to do with first King 17, but it makes me giggle. So hopefully it has the same effect on you. And so sure enough, Um, God is providing for the widow, for her son and for Elijah out of this jar of flour and this jug of oil. But then tragedy strikes again. Uh, the woman's son becomes ill and he dies and the woman is upset because she thinks that, uh, because Elijah has come, God has seen her sin and he's, she is punishing. Uh, God is punishing the widow's sin by causing her son to die. And so Elijah goes, and um, he goes to the boy, and he cries out to God. He says, O Lord my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber to his house and delivered him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And so we see this wonderful miracle at the end of God's provision. And that's really the narrative we're looking at today. So we see A, we're introduced to Ahab. He's a terrible king, Jericho' has been rebuilt. we're introduced to Elijah, he's speaking against the evil of the king. he's bringing judgment by predicting a famine and then there's this provision, this uh, threefold provision we see in the life of Elijah his uh, scene at the brook with the ravens, his scene with the widow and the loaf and jug and his scene with the widow's son. So what do we do with this? when we apply kind of our three-part question that um, I use for my devotions and hopefully you have begun to use this a little bit. We look up in the text, we look in in the text, and we look out. Look up, what does this teach us about God? Look in, what does this teach us about ourselves? And look out, how does this change the way that we live? So looking up, what does this teach us about God? Um, as we continue to read uh, in First Kings, we are going to see places where God is wonderfully present. Right. We see God raising a son here. Um, but we also see places where God is absent, and that's intentional. Because we're seeing how these kings are not like God. God who had always been Israel's king. If you remember back uh, in 1 Samuel, when Israel demands a king, God tells Samuel, they have not rejected you as king. They've rejected me as king. And so actually in the weaknesses of Israel's king, we learn more about the God who has no weaknesses. And what's interesting here is you see this tension where here God is giving meticulous, special provision to a fugitive Elijah on the run and to a widow and to a son who were about to die. And so you have this, this, this contrast, right? You've got, uh, uh, Ahab who is, as we'll see an immensely powerful King, though he's wicked. And you've got these two or three very vulnerable individuals with Elijah, the widow and her son and God's meticulous kind care is not towards the King and his power but towards these weak individuals in their lowliness. And that shows what we've seen a lot through First Kings and what we see most clearly in the New Testament is that God doesn't look to those who are mighty by the world's standards in order to bestow them favor. Our world looks for the markers of strength, the markers of success, and Ahab had those in spades. But instead what God looks to is he looks to those uh, who are broken and contrite in spirit. God looks to the lowly. And we see this in this text that God is not looking at you waiting for you to do something special so that he might bless you. Instead, he sees our weaknesses and he comes to our weaknesses with the gospel of grace. Jesus came while we were yet sinners, not when we were super saints. And so we see God's wonderful kindness in this text of caring for those who feel like that widow at wit's end, who feel like Elijah, like there's no provision. Here, Elijah is faithful to go and do what God has called them to do. And yet he himself is victim of this famine, which is meant to judge Ahab. And so God is faithful in all of this. Uh, We also see God's providence in here. So we see We see his provision for the widow in contrast to the king, but we also see his providence. We see it uh, in two places. We see the miraculous raising of the widow's son. Uh, We see it in the provision of the loaf and the jug, and we see it in provision of the um, uh, brook and the ravens. And so it's a pretty miraculous thing. Verse 8 or verse 6 of chapter 17, it says, and the ravens brought Elijah bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And so nature itself is actually taking care of Elijah, but it's taking care of Elijah because God is providential over it. And I was reading this morning, Charles Spurgeon has a really interesting quote I wanted to share with you guys. It's a longer one. um, So bear with me. He says this, God has the power to make all creatures obedient to his will. These ravens never croaked out a single objection, but did as they were commanded. Their instincts did not rebel, but they submitted absolutely to God's will, and I dare say, were as diligent and happy in carrying the bread and meat to Elijah as they would have been if they were taking it to their own young or feasting on it themselves. The whole world is obedient to God. He spoke once to the great floods of water, and they sprang from the vast caverns where they slept, and down they dashed. And when God just whispered to them, and bid them to go back to their resting places. Back they went, and the waters were removed from the earth. Nor were the floods of earth merely obedient, for celestial bodies have confessed his power. For Joshua made the sun and moon stand while the Lord's warriors struck their foe. Nor are inanimate things his only sway. The lions crouch at Daniel's feet, and the monster fish swallows, but does not destroy the wayward Jonah. Nor do only great things obey him. The worm at God's command struck the root of Jonah's gourd. The locust came on Egypt and sent all manner of flies and lice in all their quarters. Is it not a sad and strange thing that humans are the only creatures who refuse to obey their creator? I know that even Judas fulfills that to which he was appointed. But so far as his will is concerned, man remains a stout rebel against God. The raven commanded to carry bread and meat does it, but the unbeliever commanded to believe in Christ, to repent of his sins, and to produce the fruit of repentance, refuses to do it. Oh, the stubbornness of human nature. We are worse than the ravens. Quotes from then from Isaiah 1. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. And so there we see, God's providence in nature, but also this this wonderful contrast of obedience here where Ahab's being disobedient, and yet nature is caring for God's people as God's king should. God's king should be the one providing for Israel, should be the ones providing for the prophets, but here nature itself is being obedient to do that. So we see God's wonderful um, care, we see his wonderful providence, and we see his good nature in this. Uh, When we look in, What does this teach us about ourselves? Well, I think we see um, two things, which are kind of the same side of the coin. We see first God's faithfulness, even in hard times. And so I was thinking of this when I read it this morning, is uh, God has Elijah go to this powerful king. And we're going to see, Elijah has a lot of fear for Ahab, um, because he knows he's not bringing good news to Ahab. And he knows that the king holds power to kill him for not bringing good news. And so Elijah starts by going to a scary place to the king. And we know uh, the the author at this point doesn't really elaborate, but we know it doesn't go well because uh, God says this to Elijah afterwards, depart from here, turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook. And so Elijah, whatever happened in the throne room of Ahab, Elijah now needs to go hide And yet, in that hiding, look at what God says. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so here, this trial, Elijah goes and does something hard, but God is out in front of him, as as God always is with grace. And he says, you will hide here, and I will care for you. And then the brook dries up. The same brook that God provided, Elijah dries up. But look at what God says again. He says, go to zarephath Ath, which belongs in Sidon, and dwell there. And behold, I've commanded a widow to feed you. And so he goes to this widow, and sure enough, she is going to give him water. But then we find out that she doesn't have any food. But look at what he says here. He says, Do not fear. Go and do as you said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And so whether it was with Ahab, whether it was with the brook, whether it was with the the loaf and the jug, Elijah keeps walking into these hard moments of tension, but God is out in front of him saying, I'm going to care for you, even in these moments of hardship. And what we see here is, this really interesting response then because elijah walks into another hard circumstance the widow's son has died but at it contrast to the previous three moments of tension god doesn't communicate his out in frontness to elijah He didn't say, hey, Elijah, the son is going to die, and this is what I'm going to tell you to do. We don't see that. Everywhere else, God says, I'm going to provide for you with the brook. I'm going to provide for you with the widow. I'm going to provide for you with the loaf and jug. And here the son dies, and God has not spoken so to Elijah. And Elijah doesn't know what to do. In fact, he goes to God, and he says, why have you done this? And this is where we see the flip side of this coin, not only do we see God's care for us in hard times. But our response to seeing God's track record of care is to trust that God has not stopped caring, even when the clear promise of care has been removed. God was there with Elijah and the widow and her dead son just as much as God was there previously. And this is where we learn that we need to learn to trust God's goodness. And this actually goes way back to what we looked at in chapter um or 11 on Friday. Remember God goes to Jeroboam and this is where God is beginning to, to tear this kingdom from Solomon. He's raising up adversaries against Solomon. And God says to Jeroboam, he says this, he says, I will take the kingdom out of my son's hands. That's da- the tribe of David. and I'll give you 10 tribes. And so Jeroboam's going to be this King of Israel and God is giving to him, God himself, giving him 10 tribes of the 12 tribes he says, yet to my son, I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. And he says this, uh, I will take you, and you, that's Jeroboam, shall reign over all your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. God has promised it to Jeroboam. You will be king. Verse 38 continues, and if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house as I built it for David, and I will give Israel to you. So here we have Jeroboam, who's done nothing. He is not part of the promised line of Judah, and yet God goes to him in like almost four times in this text. He's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's going to be certain. He's expanded his promise to David, and now he's kind of included Jeroboam in this. But what happens in chapter 12? Jeroboam fails to trust that God will do this. He sees that people are still going south to the kingdom of Judah, to worship. So what does Jeroboam do? He begins to introduce idol worship in the north because he worries that if people keep going back down to worship Yahweh in Judah, that they will not honor him as king. And so this continues. What we've seen on and on and on throughout this Old Testament narrative so far is that people are unwilling to trust in God. And when we are unwilling to trust in God and his promise, we will always sin to try to assure ourselves of trust in something else. And so we saw that with Jeroboam. And now we see this with Ahab, right? Ahab is not trusting in God. He's building Baals. He's building Asherah. And then we encounter this aside of Jericho. And why is this important? Because God told his people that they will never need to rebuild Jericho. He has cursed the walls of Jericho. Now, what does this mean? It means that God's city, that when Israel... Repopulates Jericho, there's not going to be walls. Why? Because Israel knows walls mean nothing to protect God's people. God caused the walls of Jericho to fall down at an orchestra note. You don't need walls when you have the God who topples walls. But what is Ahab doing? He's building the walls, he is not trusting in the God of Israel. He is trusting in his own might. He's trusting in his own power and in his own success. And now here we have Elijah, who in this moment doesn't know what to do, but here's the difference. Unlike Jeroboam and unlike Ahaz, Elijah, though scared and frustrated, he goes to God. He goes to God and he says, why have you done this? And so there are two things here that we see. is One, we see That Elijah is a little shook at this point. He's not quite understanding why what's happening is happening. And you'll have that too. Sometimes we like it when things are clear and we can trust God, but other times it's unclear. In those moments, we can get anxious, we can get frustrated. But what we do with that frustration is really important. Elijah goes to God and he says, What do I do? Why are you doing this? And sure enough, uh, Elijah, by the power of God, raises the widow's son back to life and at the end of this the widow says now i know let me find my spot here now i know that you are a man of god and that the word of the lord in your mouth is truth and so we see in this we can trust god's timing we can really trust god's timing and this is what we do when we begin to look out in looking in we see our temptation to trust in our own timing which leads only to sin but we see the wonder of going to God when we wrestle with what we don't know and crying out to him for help. And so when it comes to looking out, I really see in this text, this aspect of trust. God is caring not for the king in his power, but for the widow in her sorrow, not for the king in his courts, but for this fugitive prophet on the run. And what's interesting is, is here we see in this text, Ahab who had all the accoutrements of worldly success, right? He is the king. He's got temples. He's got the hot wife. He's got power. He's rebuilt Jericho. He is pretty insulated from this famine by worldly standards, right? Every The king gets food in his kingdom before anyone else does, right? And so in looking at him, he would seem like the one who has success. But Elijah is the one who's actually trusting in God. Elijah is the one who has sound trust, and yet what we see in this text is that it doesn't mean that Elijah's life is easy. Just because we trust God does not mean that we won't have moments where we need to trust God more. Just because we trust in God does not mean that our trust is not going to be exposed. In fact, it means that God in his goodness will more than likely expose places where we need to trust God more. A life of trusting God isn't easy. But it's always the one that brings peace. it's always the one that gets us where we want to go and I love this here because at the end um, here imagine yourself as the widow the widow's going she's gonna prepare a meal her last meal with her last flour and her last oil because she she's about to die they have no more food and now here comes this man of God and he asks her for water and then he asks her for the last food she has in her house and then he says that God will cause the loaf and the jug to never run dry. And sure enough, they live in this. And then her son dies and she goes to the, Elijah and she's like, why Why is this happening? Why have you come and cursed me with the death of my son? But then Elijah goes and by the power of God, she raises, or he raises the son and then she believes and says, you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, in all of this, the widow has now gotten to a point where she sees most clearly that the word of God is sufficient to trust in. And for us as Christians, haven't we seen something better than a widow's son being raised from the dead? We have seen Jesus himself, the true King of Israel who came and was mistreated for our account, who spent three days in the grave and was raised again by God. We have proof greater than the widow had, that the word of the Lord is true, that he will not neglect his people, that we need not trust like Ahab in the walls of Jericho or in the acceptance of culture and God. We can trust in the risen and ruling King Jesus, even in times where it seems difficult. And I love where Paul brings this in Romans 8, where he says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him, that's the son who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a God who has shown us the validity of his word. And in seasons of famine, when the brook runs dry and the widow's son dies and the loaf and jug seem small and insignificant, we do not need to look for the walls of Jericho because we've seen the son of heaven and so my hope in this text is that we see the foolishness of ahab and his power and we see the promise of god to those who are weak and broken given to us in jesus christ so let me pray for us today and then i hope we'll dismiss you guys for your monday lord jesus i thank you so much that because we have seen what you've done in jesus christ your son We can look into the future, into seasons where your provision is unclear and we know that you have not forgotten us. So, Lord, I pray that you make us a people who in those moments of uncertainty, we run to you and not to the world. We run to you and we ask with all of our real emotions, why is this happening? And yet we trust that the same one to whom we voice our concerns is the only one we know can actually provide for us. Lord, I pray that if if we have in our hearts right now um, false gods and false idols that we run to for comfort, That you would, like Elijah did to Ahab, you would speak clearly to those evils so that we might know. That even if it's by a famine of some sort in our own life, you would expose the foolishness of what we hope in. That the storehouses of grain that we think are provided by the idols of sin would run low so that we might turn to the God who has given us everything in his son. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Have a great week. And we will see you later.